Time is precious, and I think most composers don't give enough thought to the fact that they're asking for 10 minutes of a person's life, and they're asking for a lot of attention, a lot of careful listening. And 10 minutes of a person's life, particularly if you don't know them, they've gone into the concert hall or the theater, they paid money to have you take 10 minutes of their life. And if you waste that time, shame on you. Composer Darren Hagen on this edition of Presto. I'm John Nowacki, and Presto is a production of New England Public Radio. Darren Hagen is a composer, conductor, and author. Born in Wisconsin, Hagen studied composition with Ned Roram at the Curtis Institute and David Diamond at the Juilliard School, and then worked privately with Lucas Foss and Leonard Bernstein. During the 90s, he worked as a copyist and editor for numerous concert composers and Broadway shows. Hagen taught for a decade at Bard College and served on the faculties of the Curtis Institute, New York University, and the Princeton Atelier. Currently, he co-chairs the composition program at the Wintergreen Music Festival and is on the faculty at the Chicago College of the Performing Arts at Roosevelt University. His works include five symphonies, concertos, operas, chamber music, and more than 350 art songs. A resident of upstate New York, Hagen divides his time between composing, directing, and writing. His autobiography, Duet with the Past, a composer's memoir, was published in 2019. Darren Hagen, welcome to Presto. What I really wanted to ask you, I almost feel like I don't have the right to, but who are you? And how would you introduce yourself to somebody who met you for the first time? Well, you're seeing exactly who I am. I'm a survivor. I'm an explorer and an inventor and a teacher. I know that sounds all very pretentious, but I'm definitely a survivor. I'm an alcoholic, recovering, six and a half years sober. I am a composer. But I'm I'm not really a composer anymore. I've witnessed the world that I was trained to be a part of disappear. Disappear or has it moved on from the point that you were most active as a composer? What do you mean? I compose in an environment that is profoundly different from the environment that I thought that I was going to participate in. I'm about 8 to 10 years younger than all of the composers with whom I came up. My contemporaries at Juilliard were people like Richard Danielpour and Lowell Lieberman and so forth. They're all a little bit older than me, but I was a wunderkind, so I got pushed along fast, and I was in graduate school early. And they sort of are enjoying the end of what remained of the world of the 40s symphonists. But the nature of our industry has now changed so profoundly that I don't teach composition students in person anymore. I teach exclusively on the internet because it's better and more effective. And my students are in Korea and and Germany and, and Australia and Vegas and out in LA, people in the film business. And I put a dress shirt on and I teach on Skype and I try to wear shorts if I can. <laughs> uh, but I'm more effective teacher because now we share electronic files. I was trained to play and sing everything that I wrote sitting on the piano bench next to Ned Roram or Leonard Bernstein or David Diamond. And that is a skill set that I'm proud to have and I'm relieved that I have. But now I spend a lot more time with Pro Tools and Sibelius engraving software and Final Cut Pro, which is a film editing software. And 
and my students, I'm preparing them for careers writing game music hmm. for video games and film scores. And my wife is a marvelous symphonic composer, but I say, well, honey, are you going to write a symphony sometime in the next couple of years? And she said, why on earth would I write a symphony? Well, I'll leave symphonies to Jennifer Higdon. It's interesting. You're talking the way you're teaching now. It's almost as if there's a personal aspect of it that's missing. You're Skyping. That's fine. But your experience of sitting on that piano bench with the teacher next to you, I'd be terrified for one thing. Whereas if we're in a computer situation, I don't think I'd be as terrified of you if I didn't do my homework. Oh, I could work on it. You know, it's always, as Samuel Clemens noted at the end of his memoir, Life on the Mississippi, once you know how something is made, something is lost, but something is gained. And so the gain and loss is there. I always found it extraordinarily peculiar that we used to all sit around watching each other listen to our music. You've composed just about everything from works for voice and piano, choral works, you've composed chamber works, symphonies, and especially opera. What do you prefer out of all of that? Well, I haven't cooled my jets. I just finished and heard premiered an 87-minute film score for chamber orchestra, Jekyll and Hyde, yeah. the 1920 John Barrymore film. And this is to accompany the film, right? Yeah, yeah. but it's also an opera with the voices stripped out. It's music minus one. So I just stripped the voices out, and then they accompanied a film, and it's lovely. They did a fabulous job. But that's 84 minutes of music, and I have a 70-minute song cycle for six voices and two pianos to do at Yaddo and piano trio. I just finished 25-minute trio. So, I mean, I'm composing, I guess, as much music as I ever did. But my focus is now on the process of being a creative person with the actuality of being a parent and coming to terms with running out of time. As you begin to do once things start breaking down in the physical plant and you start contemplating mortality, another deep, dark subject. But those things are all now the fascinations of an artist trying to figure out what a second act might look like. And I'd like to have a second act, and I'm working on that, but there are very few examples of good second acts. So I guess the question then would be if you're going to try and beat the odds and have a second act. Yeah, I think that's why I wrote this memoir, because I wanted to close the door on the processing that I'd been doing since I was a teenager. I mean, it never ends, but self-absorption, perhaps moving my gaze from my navel to my chest, because I've learned a couple of really good things the last 15, 20 years. One of them is that combined with the extraordinary audacity and sense of entitlement that we creative artists have in sharing our work with the world, we also are the recipients of profound contempt. And worse than contempt, Ned taught me in the early 80s to look out for the fact that we don't even deserve contempt anymore because we don't exist. Now, that would be in terms of mainstream culture. So he already, when I began studying with him in the early 80s, was coming to terms with the changing of his own world. He himself saw that nobody cared. I do want to talk about a couple of your pieces or have you talk mm -hmm. about them that I've just fallen in love with, your piano trios, and particularly the number three, Wearfaring Stranger, and number four, Angel Band. I love piano trios because they have everything. They're the eternal triangle. I'm a pianist, so there's that physical connection to the genre. I also, at a very formative time in my life when I was a student in Philadelphia, lived with a very fine violinist who taught me how to put my hands on the instrument. 
and an excellent cellist. And we were all roommates and close pals. And he taught me how to, to think about and hear the cello. But what happened was the psychology of that particular ensemble is such that the violinist and the cellist can gang up on the pianist. (laughs) It can be a piano concerto with accompaniment. The piano can be an orchestra. They can be three disagreeing people at a cocktail party. As a person who likes to have a narrative in his compositions, I really love the fact that I've got three actors on stage. The third trio was written in memory of my brother, Britt, who had just passed away. And his favorite hymn was The Wayfaring Stranger. And I was driving through in the north, you call it one name. It's a battlefield west of Washington, D.C., Manassas. In the south, you call it something else, Bull Run, I think. So I was driving through that area, and a cover of the hymn came on, and I I heard the trio, and I was on my way to the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, and I just wrote it that weekend in his memory. The lovely thing about using a hymn that everyone knows is that it gives them a little bit of terra firma so that when you take excursions elsewhere which 80% of the the piece isn't about that hymn, but it is inspired by the hymn, it gives them a safe place to start and an emotional landing zone so that when you come back to it, they go, oh, you've been talking about this. And that's just good rhetoric. Well, let's listen to the second movement of the Piano Trio Number 3, which quotes Wayfaring Stranger and gives the trio its name.
That was the Finisterra Trio performing the second movement of Darren Hagen's Piano Trio Number、no. Three, Wayfaring Stranger. Darren, now what about the fourth piano trio? The fourth trio is more complicated because it has to do with the hymn "Angel Band." And "Angel Band" has been very precious to me because my wife sings it and has sung it to our children ever since they were infants. And she and I perform it together when we perform as singer and pianist. And there are a lot of associations that I have with the process of parenting. The idea of Angel Band is that we're surrounded by our dead relatives,、yeah. and that we're going to be reunited with them after we die. And this image has been pretty central to the way that I managed to cobble together my little psyche for a long time. The emotions are all authentic. And again, it gives you in Angel Band a safe place to rest when the music is going somewhere that is perhaps not challenging but alien. When you talk about your wife singing to your kids, this is something that was in the book. This is where you could hear her on the baby monitor. Was that right? You'd、yeah. be in the kitchen doing dishes, and you could hear her while、yeah. she's singing to the kids. Yeah, and music is so omnipresent in our household. I don't know how our children are going to survive. Darren, before we go on, let's listen to the opening movement from your piano trio number、no. four, which has in it Angel Band. Here again is the Finisterra Trio.
That was the Finisterra Trio performing the first movement from the Piano Trio Number no. 4 by Darren Hagen, which quotes the actual tune, Angel Band. Well, let's go back to your book a little bit, your autobiography, Duet with the Past, a composer's memoir. Why write this book now? I diarized compulsively from about the age of 15 until 11 years ago when my eldest boy was born. And I stopped because I realized that diarizing was a primary relationship with myself that I could no longer accommodate, not because there was a new little human being in my life and I needed to stop, but I do love to write. I said, well, you know what? I'll write this book for him. And that's when I started writing the memoir 11 years ago. Then we had another boy, and I said, well, now I really have to write it. And then about a year ago, I was diagnosed with the same aortic valve problem that my namesake, my brother, died of as an infant. And I wanted to get the book in print in case I died under the knife. <laughs> that's cheerful. But I understand. I understand well, what you're saying. I wanted saying. to get it done. And I think I said earlier that I also wanted to close the book on a way of looking at being a composer that was essentially selfish. Self-actuation is one thing. And the price we're willing to extract from the people who say they love us for some reason, the things we do to the people who say they love us in order to get what we want and carve out the time to do what we want to do is really an extraordinary thing when you look at it. And that level of selfishness, self-interest, is something that needs to be examined. And this book examines that. What are the costs of being in it for yourself? The book has been described as brutal, haunted. I feel like a survivor. My brothers didn't survive. Neither did my mother or father. My father was an alcoholic. Both my brothers were. And my mother died of lung cancer. I think if you're going to write a book like this, first of all, you can't feel sorry for yourself and you can't feel self-justifying. If you write it, be honest. It's the best piece of advice I got. And it was from Ned, ironically. He said, you know, if you're going to do this, tell the truth as you see it. And it's still going to be a mess. And a hot mess in some cases. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, yeah. But, I mean, but oh. you're right. When you say truth as you see it, you keep saying it over and over again that this is the truth as you see it. And it's very transparent. But again, brutal, almost you're haunted in some cases. I wasn't psychotic, God knows, but I did feel very much surrounded by my dead relatives and friends and so forth. And you talk about transparency. It, it Only in retrospect does one understand that I did that because dead people are easier to deal with than living people. Living people make demands on you. Dead people are available when and you have time to feel sorry about them. So in a way, this is an exorcism. I hadn't thought of it that way. I think it's a wake, not an exorcism. Well, you do talk about that, and you yeah. present it that way, right? Yeah, right. Theodore Rethke's great poem, The Waking, very precious to me and has been for many years because he talks about I wake to sleep and I take my waking slow because waking up, of course, is also we wake the dead. And that's a secular humanist credo. But then there's also another waking which is the rising of Christ. And I'm surprised by the number of letters I've received from people who say, Darren, I didn't know you were so religious. And I've never thought that I was particularly religious, but there is a very profound human story 
that should, like selfishness, should be examined. And that is, you don't have to take Christ rising from the dead literally to think about why are we looking in the past among dead people for indications about why life should be worth living. And that's sort of the other side of this book. I've got one final question that I want to ask. When somebody's listening to your music, what do you want them to take away? I just want to make sure that I haven't wasted their time. Time is precious. And I think most composers don't give enough thought to the fact that they're asking for 10 minutes of a person's life. And they're asking for a lot of attention, a lot of careful listening. And 10 minutes of a person's life, particularly if you don't know them, they've gone into the concert hall or the theater. They paid money to have you take 10 minutes of their life. And if you waste that time, shame on you. That's what I think about so the very least I can do, as Richard Strauss would say, is entertain and divert. Then if you dig deeper, speak truth to power. And then if, you, if you're even more of a sophisticate, musical sophisticate, perhaps have a conversation with the future and the past. Those are three levels of discourse which any gifted musician always has. But that's just, again, how do you not waste people's time? Darren, would you be willing to read something from your book? I would love to. I can read to you from the very end of the book. And it actually starts with a brief note to my priest. And then it goes on from there. It's about composing before my children wake up. And here's how the book ends. My priest's name is Richard. Richard, I observe. I am music. I breathe it. And the alternative silence is at this point unacceptable to me. My sons need a father. Jilda, my wife, needs a foil and helper. But I've come to understand that music was always just the score, not the performance. You are a performer of magic, bringing to my life for me each time I observe your movement through the mass, the score with which you've been provided, the reminder that more than self-actuation is at stake here, hearing the pounding of little boy feet above me. I smoothly notate the phrase of music hanging like an echo in my mind, like a magician winding up an illusion. As I rise from my little Baldwin grand piano, I feel a gentle tug. I pause and affectionately run my palm over the lid. Of course, I will continue to compose, I tell myself, because now comes the good stuff. My bare feet fish for, and then find the slippers parked beneath the piano. As ever, I think of the Retke poem as I move to the base of the stairs and I look up as the hymn proclaims the holy ranks of friends and kindred dear are still near, I think, and I feel and I take comfort in them, but I no longer need nor can I spare to spend my remaining days waking the dead and seeking the quick. My quick, Atticus and Seamus, fresh from bed and still in their pajamas, appear at the top of the stairs, rubbing the sleep out of their beautiful eyes. As dawn breaks, they, they descend, they encircle me with their arms, and they look up into my face. How could I possibly, under the circumstances, have regrets, I think? I hold them to me. I hope that I will be here to observe one day as they take their own reins, veering off course in the matter of an occupation or profession. I hope someday to experience the almost superhuman compassion and sorrow of seeing them gallop off hell-bent to damnation without crying foul.
the happy sad of being a parent is that you can't keep your children in your arms forever. They've already begun to squirm away. When I release them, my heart sings as I watch them explode, not into my time, but their own. Darren, thank you so much for coming by and talking with me today. This my has been pleasure. lovely. I've been talking with composer Darren Hagen. His book, Duet with the Past, a composer's memoir, is out now. The executive producer of Presto is John Vosey. I'm John Nowacki. Presto is a production of New England Public Radio.